Marco's legs shook as he crouched behind the boulder. His tormentors shouting threats drew closer. Marco could not know that millennia before, men had trapped something dark there. This place lost to the wilderness, bound and cursed and left to be forgotten. He closed his eyes and prayed. Blood from his nose dripped down his chin and hit the dirt. Something beneath him spoke. Blood and a request for freedom. Speak your desire. Set me free. Marco pointed towards the bullies and heard screams, then silence. He walked out of the forest peacefully, following giant footprints burned into the earth. The sun has gone down. It's dark outside. Nighttime has begun. But you dare not close your eyes. For in the darkness there are things unseen. Faces without eyes watching you. Nightmares exist while you're awake. No matter how much you try, you remain sleepless. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. powerful form of protection brings forth ravenous revenge. Awakening an ancient power has its benefits, it seems, as we learned from author Nick Morfox from the tale which was this episode's cold open, The Blood Accord, performed by Dan Zapula. It gives me devilish pleasure to make the following announcement. Brace yourself. This autumn, in the Rocky Mountains, horror doesn't end with Halloween. You are invited to attend a two-day trip into terror at the legendary Stanley Hotel in Estes Park, Colorado. The Stanley Hotel became infamous thanks to Stephen King's horror classics, The Shining, and its sequel, Dr. Sleep. And on November 4th and 5th, Dr. Sleep will become Dr. Sleepless. Spend the weekend with renowned horror creator Mike Flanagan, director of the Dr. Sleep movie and creator of Netflix horror series such as Haunting of Hill House, Haunting of Bly Manor, and Midnight Mass. Joining Mike is Kate Siegel, one of the stars of those Netflix series, as well as the star and co-writer of the movie Hush, a devilish duo bringing horror to the big and small screen. Mike and Kate will be screening the director's cut of Dr. Sleep and answering questions about the movie and the inspiration they draw from the haunted Stanley Hotel. 
Don't miss your chance to engage with these outstanding creators who are elevating horror to new heights. But as I mentioned, at this event, the doctor will be sleepless. Because joining me on stage for a full live performance by the No Sleep Podcast will be Lindsay Russo, Mick Wingert, Nicole Doolin, and Kyle Akers, with a live musical score performed by Brandon Boone. This performance will feature a brand new, never-before-heard chapter from the Goat Valley Campground series, an original script written for the stage by author Bonnie Quinn, featuring the original cast of the Goat Valley Campground series. That's right, a brand new live chapter of Bonnie's epic tale from Goat Valley Campgrounds. The man with the skull cup will be expecting you. Along with these two events will be your chance to experience the splendor and spookiness of the Stanley. Attend a cocktail party while being served drinks by Mike and Kate and the No Sleep team. Meet authors Matt and Harrison Query as they sign copies of and discuss the No Sleep subreddit short stories origins that led to their new horror novel, Old Country, coming soon to the big screen. Ghost tours, meet and greets, all with the glorious Rocky Mountains as the backdrop. It's an event you won't want to miss. Tickets are on sale now. Find out all the details and get your tickets by going to live.thenosleeppodcast.com. That's L-I-V-E dot thenosleeppodcast.com. Dr. Sleepless at the Stanley. Come out and shine with us. We hope to see so many of you there, sleepless friends. And now we offer for your approval a series of stories we hope will make you sleepless. In our first tale, we meet a woman who has escaped from terrible domestic abuse. She knows she needs to stay away from that man for good. But in this tale, shared with us by author Mark Taus, we learn that she wants to meet with him. She's ready to end things, but knows how dangerous he can be. Performing this tale are Erica Sanderson, David Alt, and Penny Scott Andrews. So be strong and do what you know is right when you know it's time for a change. Cold white light sweeps across the house, sucking out any comfort in its path. Crunching gravel has my aching fingers clamping even tighter around the mantel. This was a bad idea. And we're back in relative darkness again, the flickering candle on the patio fighting for survival. The car door slams, a silhouette, footsteps, inhale, exhale. I could hide, maybe if... I promise you, Beth, this is the only way you'll be free of him. Olivia's voice in my head settles me a little, but I feel nowhere close to as brave as in her presence. Without closure, she told me, I'll never be able to move forward. I'll always be running. 
And God knows I've tried everything else. His familiar rhythmic rapping of the door sets my skin on fire. All of my rehearsed words start tumbling like kicked-over alphabet blocks, and as I walk to the door, I feel like I'm going into battle without arms. I'll be there with you, Beth. Remember that. I won't leave your side. None of us will. There he is. The love of my life. He smiles his once-powerful smile and raises the bouquet. Never been a flower kind of girl, but I'll take them over a broken jaw any day of the week. My trembling fingers lock around the door handle, the metal feeling impossibly cold. Hello, Paul. Rebecca, you look amazing. I stand my ground as he leans in towards me, blue eyes all childlike and hopeful. Familiar spicy aftershave wafts in with the gentle breeze, tainting the smell of cooking food and causing my stomach to churn. But I allow his lips to find my cheek. Warm breath sends a shudder down my spine, but I refuse to move, reaching my hand out and imagining Olivia's fingers coiling around mine. I won't leave your side. I missed you. He pulls away slowly and offers the flowers, his eyes even more alive with expectation. People always struggled to understand why I kept letting him back in. They used to look at me as though I was stupid, not quite all there. And Christ, they only knew the half of it. The marks I couldn't cover with high-top dresses, scarves and long sleeves. But I thought this man was the love of my life. And we were happy once, as content as can be in such an absurd existence. To this day, I can't pinpoint when the darkness consumed him. But, as the saying goes, love is blind. Wine? Sure. He closes the door behind him. Beautiful night. It is. I thought we could eat on the patio. He eyes the table outside and takes the glass of red. Stunning place, but a bit off the beaten track. Drove past it twice. Whose is it, anyway? Belongs to a friend. A proper country girl. Olivia runs it as a safe place for abuse victims. Shady Pines Retreat. Quite often, she'll just let people have it for a few days. A chance to embed themselves in nature. Can I give you a hand with anything? No. Sit down. It'll be ready in a couple of minutes. What you? He folds his arms, surveying the wooded area at the back. It smells amazing out here. I mean, the food also, but the air so fresh and invigorating. I call this eggshell mode, usually lasting a couple of days after an event, but inevitably giving way to darkness. That's how I used to think of it, that there was a demon inside of him, and I was the only one who could cast out the evil. A tumultuous life spent walking a tightrope between love and fear. It is beautiful, I say, already thinking of the place as a second home. The pine, the wildflowers, the faint smell of smoke. Simple things, eh? They're the ones we lose sight of. He pulls a chair out. How have you been? 
I begin slicing the lamb, my appetite returning. How have I been? How have I been? My bones are fixing, but the scars will remain forever. Getting there. I was surprised. He inhales again. A city boy all his life. When I got the invitation, I mean. Dinner's nearly ready. Help yourself to more wine. But I notice his glass already replenished. He tried giving up alcohol before. Even booked into an AA meeting once after a particularly nasty episode. Just another offering to temporarily appease. Don't you get scared out here all alone? I didn't see another house for miles. It's the safest I've felt in years. The chorus of crickets fails to disguise his sigh, but he says nothing as he lifts his glass to his lips. I carry his plate through. I hope it's good. Don't usually go to the trouble with it just being me. Usually a sandwich or a microwave meal. Oh, it looks great. I feel his eyes on me as I put the plate down. There's more if you're hungry. The candle's flame flickers as the gentle breeze blows across, bringing more of his scent and an image of our old bedroom. The extended crack in the ceiling and the sheer purple curtains. I grasp the back of a chair for support, waiting for the dizziness to pass. So, um... What am I doing here, Beck? What do you mean? I retreat towards the kitchen counter, full of doubt once again. You haven't replied to my text for weeks, and then, out of the blue, I get an invite for dinner. Gripping the plates to stop my trembling, I make my way back to the table. This is the only way you'll be free of him. Let's eat before it gets cold. He smiles and nods. It's so good to see you. To anyone who doesn't know our history, I imagine we'd look like lovers at the beginning of our relationship. Gentle, classical music playing in the background. Dining and drinking wine under the light of a glorious full moon. We talk about our jobs and our friends, mutual and new. We smile, we chew, we open another bottle letting nature's perfume wrap around us. The night has all the awkwardness and superficiality of a first date, but ours takes place on a thin sheet of ice that could crack at any moment. I think about you every day. He reaches for my hand. I recoil and pray for strength. Shall we have dessert? That depends on what's on offer. Baked Alaska. I'll go and... Sit down. The shadow passes across, the demon leaving just as quickly, softness returning to his face. Please. I think this marks the juncture at which small talk ends. Why am I here, Beck? So I can move on. So we can both move on. He says nothing. But from the corner of my eye, I see the napkin crumple under his grip. We share a history, Paul. A portion of time that's come to an end. Let's close that book and move to the next. What if I don't want to? You just don't have that kind of power over me anymore. I clasp my hands together. I'm doing this regardless, and I was hoping tonight you would finally agree to let me go. I know you follow me. I know it's you on the end of the phone. I swallow hard. 
watching the napkin unfurl as he picks up his glass and consumes the dregs. Doesn't it prove how much I love you, though? My heart is breaking, Beck. Can't you see that? I'm nothing without you. Stay strong, Beck. We are with you. Your heart might be breaking, but mine is just mending. I lift my gaze from the table to his blue eyes. Some of my bones, too. His face twitches. A familiar sign he's on the defensive. His offence never far behind. Leaning back with his hands clasped behind his neck, eyes towards the stars, he exhales. My parents have been married for nearly 40 years. They never gave up on each other. How many times did I take you back? How many? Had their fair share of wars, but came out better from it. War. Every couple argues, Paul. I lean in towards him. Crossing into no man's land. No marriage should end in broken bones and blood. I feel the hair prickling on my neck and arms. The air feels charged, like just before a storm. I can almost see the thundercloud forming around him. And I can't apologise enough for that, Beck. All sincerity is sifted out by gritted teeth. He leans towards me, hands knotting together, wedding ring on show. But I've done my time, had a chance to reflect on my actions, and I... You're what? I'm taking charge, and it feels fantastic, reciprocating his advance until our heads are only inches apart. A different person? A man of God? His eyes widen, and his nostrils flare. I'm not the guy you used to know. He gives me the puppy dog eyes, but I see his knuckles turning white. Always the same lines, the same routine. I can't even remember the guy I first met. I think back to what Olivia told me, releasing my words with as much dispassion as possible. He's buried under mounds of tainted soil. Why am I really here? I told you already. I don't believe you. He settles back in the chair. You still love me, don't you? I look deep into his eyes, beyond the innocence of the blue. No. You're lying. Lines carving their way across his temple. He begins gently shaking his head. There's still a way back, Beck. I know it. As he lunges forward again, reaching for my hand, the breeze wraps around us, extinguishing the candle and bringing smells of damp tree trunks, moss and carrion. I try to break free from his grasp, but his fingers coil around my knuckles like a giant's. Tell me there's still a way back, Beck. Let go of me. Not until you tell me we can be good again. He momentarily releases his grip, sliding his hand to my wrist and snapping me towards him. Please, Beck. One more chance. One last chance. We're here with you. No. I feel his elevated pulse on my skin, his grip tightening. Air is heavy, polluted with his aftershave and the smell of rotting meat. You always were a fucking tease. His sky-blue eyes are now loaded with the promise of a storm to end all storms. Let fucking go of me, Paul! He clamps down harder, his warm smile at the door a fleeting memory, replaced with the demon's leer. 
That perfume you know I like, the music, the low-cut dress, eating under the stars, all for what, Beck? Some twisted joke, a way of hurting me? I hear rustling leaves and breathing, heavy and excitable. Look at me when I'm talking to you. He pulls me in, wrapping his other hand around the back of my head. This is not how it ends. Glasses tumble, plates clatter as he rakes against my softness. His lips devouring mine, his tongue hungrily searching within. As I revert to well-practiced numbness, orbs like glowing embers light up the woods around us, moving in time with the music and creating an almost magical display. A fairy tale romance to the outsider. He comes up for air, resting his forehead against mine. I love you so much, Beck. We can start again. I'll show you. His left hand wraps around my waist, his right beginning to slide up my low-cut dress, something I could never wear when we were together for so many reasons. One more chance. More ember-like globes appear as he applies his lips to mine with sickening intensity. I hear blood whooshing in my ears. Scenes of violence in my mind melt into the vivid imagery behind my beloved shoulder, each branch visible with impossible clarity, the grass beneath dancing to the breeze. There's fear, but only of the unknown. Placing my palms on his back, I bring him into me. He lets out a groan as his tongue gets busier still, his hands squeezing at my breasts. There's a crackle. What I think at first to be the forest carpet, but my skin begins to prickle and my body flares with pain. More snapping fills my ear, accompanied by explosive pain that has me instinctively grinding our ribcages together. He lets out a muffled rasp as I push my lips harder against his, my sharpness continuing to explore his back. Eyes wide, face red, he flails against me, but there's no give at all. The first time is always the hardest. Every hair on my body stirs as the breeze blows across once more, bringing too many scents to decipher. He continues struggling, trying to force my head back with his hands and sucking air through his nostrils, his tongue finally retreating like a wounded animal. As though someone is bending my spine like a piece of plastic, pain detonates across my back. I can hear every bone expanding, snapping, buckling. My skin smoulders with impossible intensity as Paul continues offering dampened moans, his eyes widening further still as they stare into mine. His lips form a scream as my claws pierce his flesh, but I steal it from him, just as he stole mine for all those years. Refusing to let go, I dig them in further still listening as blood pumps violently around a shredded body that now feels puny within my clutches. Fire rages within, skin stretching to accommodate elongated bones. My jaw dislocates, contorts, enlarges as new teeth cut through the rawness, bringing unimaginable agony. Instinctively, I clamp down, feeling his body trembling violently against mine as blood spills down our chins, pure fear in his eyes now. I'm ravenous again, but as I bear down on him, ready to dine, I catch sight of my reflection within the blue, and I release, recoiling until my back is against the brick. Embrace it. It's a beautiful thing. 
the hair, the eyes, the ears, though, Olivia. I'm scared. A miracle of nature. We are blessed. Her voice in my head is like water on my skin, extinguishing the flames until once again only magic surrounds me. The heightened sounds of the forest and the ever-approaching golden orbs. With a hand across his shredded lip and blood spilling through his fingers, Paul lets out a garbled cry. (coughs) In return, I offer a howl of my own. Nearly a decade's worth of screams rolled into one. He begins a delayed retreat, eyes not leaving mine. I see the knowledge in them, though, and can taste his fear now, far more potent than that rancid aftershave. As a chorus of howls return mine, eyes like headlights continuing to close in. His leg buckles, and he crumples to the concrete tiles. The night didn't quite go as planned, did it, darling? Olivia said doubt would creep up on me from time to time. But since seeing him through the glass of the door, the pathetically hopeful look spread across his face and the puny offering grasped in his right hand. I have no regrets. Finally, I'll be free of him. No longer frightened to look over my shoulder or answer my phone. One bite, and it can all be different. Olivia's first to pounce, launching towards him with a growl, her teeth clamping around his neck, prompting a blood-curdling scream and multiple streams of red that looked magnificent against the backdrop of the moon. Writhing and moaning, trying to prise her jaws away, Paul's terror-filled eyes fix on mine, perhaps hoping for a last-minute reprieve. But this dog has had its day. I can smell the blood, stronger than before. A coppery bitterness that usually turns my stomach, but now only serves to heighten my hunger. He's just prey. Others begin emerging from the darkness, ready for the feast. Teeth bared, snouts frothy with saliva. The only way. A series of watery gurgles emerge from his throat as they begin puncturing and ripping at his flesh. They tug at his body like a ragdoll, dragging him this way and that, until the twitching finally ceases and the light dims behind his eyes. She was right. Moving in, I feel free, empowered, about to feed on someone that ate away at me for most of my adult life. And when we finished eating... Picking the meat from his bones, we'll share a glass of wine and toast to new beginnings. A stronger, unified, dependable pack. We howl in unison. The women of Shady Pines retreat.
There are some rather unique professions out there. Have you ever considered becoming a hermetic necromancer? Well, it's pretty easy. You facilitate hauntings by tethering spirits to buildings. Like Preston, for example, the man in this tale, shared with us by author Evan Dickin. And we'll learn that Preston is currently preparing his newest future revenant for transition. Performing this tale are Jeff Clement and Atticus Jackson. So no matter what your job is, keep up your spirits. It's better than giving up the ghost. So, this is where you're gonna, uh, kill me? Ronnie glanced around the empty room, gaze lingering on the twisting sigils sketched onto the floor. This is where you'll transition, although I'm not killing anyone. Pointedly not looking at the loaded pistol in the center of the spiral, he snatched a bottle from the six-pack of Millers he'd brought and offered it to me. I don't drink on the job. Back when I'd started, it had taken weeks of trawling bars to find someone with the right mix of ego and self-loathing. The internet had made it laughably easy to recruit potential revenants. Job? Hell, I'm doing all the work! He tossed the bottle at my chest. I caught it rather than let it spill beer all over my incantations. Sure, fine. The beer was flat and tasted like it had been marinating in Ronnie's truck for a week. Still, part of my job was to keep the victim happy. I'd done far worse than drink lukewarm beer. I sat on the floor facing Ronnie, trying not to check my watch. Mr. Coleman had been very specific with regards to the haunt time frame. His ex-wife's movers were coming tomorrow morning. It wouldn't do for them to find the mansion spattered in blood and eldritch scribbles. I want to see the money. Ronnie waved his beer like I could conjure cash from the air. I don't have it here. The words came sharper than I'd intended. I took a breath and smiled. I'd spent weeks, months, listening to Ronnie whine about how he never got to see his kids how he had no job, no prospects, no friends, how both his parents had died when he was just 13. It made him just perfect. They'll be taken care of, though. My kids? I held up my phone. All I have to do is press a button. Two million transferred to non-refundable trusts. It was only half a lie. Hunter and Brittany would see some money when they turned 18. Less my generous finder's fee, of course. And Shelly won't get any? Not a cent. I mirrored his shit-eating grin, reflecting that Ronnie and Mr. Coleman actually had uh, quite a bit in common. What's it like being a ghost? Revenant. What's the difference? Ghosts are echoes of people. Revenants are more, I shrugged, active. So, what's it like? I took another sip from my beer and immediately regretted it. Every soul has two parts, higher and lower. Hun and Po, 
the ancient Taoist mystics called them. Your higher soul is your spirit, your mind, your hopes. Basically, the best bits of you. Your lower soul embodies all your anger, your hunger, all your baser instincts. Damn sure'd like to be rid of that shit. Ronnie glanced at the pistol. Progress. When you die, your higher soul goes wherever it goes. Normally, your lower soul would decompose along with your body. I tapped the floor with my shoe. These incantations make sure it stays tethered right here. My lower soul's a nasty piece of work. Ronnie polished off his miller and reached for another. Your boss must want to scare the shit out of whoever lives here. You could say that. The other difference between ghosts and revenants was a deadly one. But Ronnie didn't need to know. Hell of a line of work. Ronnie shook his head. Must keep you up at nights. Honestly, no. But you're like a a warlock. Hermetic necromancy has nothing to do with the devil. I took another drink, barely wincing this time. Still, killing all those people. I held up a finger. Transitioning. Sure, but it's got a way on you. Everyone who... (coughs) He belched, pounding on his chest with one hairy-knuckled hand. Transitioned. It's a job, like any other. I shrugged. Like insurance adjusting or hospice care. Except I ain't dying of cancer. I've never heard anyone. I hiccuped. It had been a while since I'd had anything stronger than water, and the beer was making my lips buzz. So your current employer's wife is going to be fine when my lower soul... Ronnie bared his teeth, making claws of his free hand. I felt a flush creep up my neck. Are gunsmiths responsible for who fires the bullets? But you're not making guns, are you? Ronnie reached over to pat my knee, like we were sharing a joke. You leave a house soulless, evil. You make it a killer. His laugh was almost a sob. (laughs) Never think about what happens after? You know, once your ghost gobbles up its victim, when the next family moves in? Did you ever consider what happens then, Preston? Not ghosts. Revan. My words slurred through lips that felt loose and wooden. I glanced at the half-full miller in my tingling hand, cold realization prickling up my spine. Ronnie had used my real name. I'll tell you what happens. Ronnie finally reached for the pistol. Two parents dead. Their dog, dead. And their 13-year-old saddled with enough trauma to get him committed. Even after he gets out, he can't hold down a job, can't keep a relationship, can't provide for his kids. I tried to stand, fell back. Oh, 
I dosed you good. Ronnie knelt to fish the cell from my pocket. Pistol pointed at my face. But the money... Ronnie pointed the phone camera at me. My throat tightened as I heard the chime of its facial recognition lock disengaging. You said it yourself, Preston. One click, and it's non-refundable. I tried to struggle as he gently pressed me down, but my limbs hung heavy as stones. Once you're gone, I'm gonna burn this whole place down. It ain't the hell you deserve. But we'll see how your soul likes rambling through ashes for a spell. The pistol's muzzle was cold against my forehead. Ronnie's smile seeming to fill the whole of my vision. Don't you worry about nothing, Preston. You and me, we're gonna make everything right. There was a very popular toy back in the 1970s called a Viewmaster. It was a stereoscope, meaning you could put photo discs into the device and through it you could see scenes in 3D. Very fun back in the day. And in this tale, shared with us by author Denzel Edwards, we meet a man who has rediscovered his old stereo viewer and, unfortunately, the strange instructions it came with. Performing this tale are Andy Cresswell, Erica Sanderson, Penny Scott Andrews, and Ash Millman. So don't always believe your eyes. Keep some things in two dimensions, otherwise you'll end up seeing double. Now, Daddy, why do you like drawing so much? Gripping the B2 between my teeth, I smudge particles of graphite with my little finger. Shades blend into other shades. Well, Tubby, when I draw, I can make the world what I want it to be. Rub down life's sharp edges. Make things better. <laughs> Daddy, you're strange. Why can't I draw like you? Her face drops a little. My pictures look really childish. Of course, Tavi. Pulling the B2 out of my mouth, my voice is clear again. You're only six years old. I like your pictures. They're very good. She adopts a serious tone. No, they aren't, Daddy. You need to teach me. Mr. Abioye says that I can do anything I put my mind to. Well, Mr. Abioye is absolutely right. You Look what I found. Lynn's voice swells towards us as she clunks down the attic ladder steps. The morning sun's rays halo her figure as she steps in front of the window. I squint, trying to identify the object swinging from her finger. What's that, Mummy? 
Lynn lifts it towards her eyes. It's one of Daddy's old toys, I think. Let's have a peek at what's on here. Leaping to my feet, I snatch it from her grip, my heart exploding into a painful pace. Whoa, easy there, James. What are you hiding on there, naked ladies? Lynn, not in front of Tabby. My thoughts are toppling over each other, bundling into a chaotic heap. I just want a quick look first. I treasured this as a little boy. I smile, trying to project affectionate nostalgia. My face feels tight and artificial. Okay, Mr. Precious, I understand. You spend some quality time with your toy, and I'll make the tea. My breathing slows as she turns and drifts out of the room. Daddy, please may I have a look? Later, darling. Tabitha frowns. I should see her stomping after her mum, stiff little arms swinging back and forth theatrically. But my eyes are down, fingers sliding tentatively over the plastic surface of the toy, pondering its secrets. Then, the stereo viewer was sitting in a box on my doorstep one humid afternoon as I trudged home from school. I'd been walking somewhat gingerly, as was often the case, thanks to yet another humiliating wet towel whipping that Dale Chambers had unleashed on my private parts after our school swimming lesson. The jostling throng of onlookers had jeered and howled, feeding Chambers' ego with theatrical hysterics and gleeful dances, Essentially, the fee you paid to ensure your most vulnerable assets wouldn't be next under the brutal snap of his towel. Even Mr. Cook grinned when I stumbled out of the changing room, doubled over in pain. Much to my disappointment, my parents refused to let me open the box, initially at least. You'll need to send it back, James, my father had commanded, his patience as famously short as his stature. I wasn't really sure where, since it was devoid of any sender details. My mother had me leave it on the doorstep each day for the rest of the week before they reluctantly let me keep it. Opening the box was like a ritual. Shutting my bedroom door, I'd simply stared at it for some time. Eventually, I'd carefully pulled open the flaps and drew out my treasure. Red and shiny, the hard plastic was smooth beneath my touch. I drew it to my eyes and pulled on the lever, desperate to see the exciting images inside. What would they be? Footballers? Spacecraft? My favorite female pop stars? But each slide, supposed to present the viewer with an exciting scene or object, was blank. Pushing down on the lever again and again, I begged for my reward. But the only thing I could see was my disappointed gaze in the reflection of the eye holes. Tossing it on my bed in disgust, I flung the empty box across the room. Well, nearly empty. A sheet of paper cut scything arcs through the air on its descent to the carpet. The instructions were as basic as the font they were typed in. Draw your intended outcome. Slide it into the slot. Push the lever three times. Done. I picked the toy back up and rolled it around in my hands. Sure enough, there was the slot. I'd somehow missed it the first time around, a couple of inches wide, 
a tiny letterbox into the device. I peered inside, trying to assess whether this bizarre claim could be true. Sliding it back into the box, I hid it under my bed, switching on my Commodore 64. Yet, I couldn't stop thinking about the instructions on the paper and the bright red device beneath me that promised so much. Now, Jesus, put the knife down. She's pincering the blade of a utility knife between thumb and finger. The glinting silver quivers slightly under her grip. Why? I'm still using it. Don't be such a pussy. She delivers it nonchalantly, but the words slice me like the blade she's brandishing. James the Pussy, the default target of the school bullying fraternity. The easy option. Old scars never disappear. It looks very sharp. It is sharp. That's the idea, James. It supports its core function of cutting stuff. The stuff in this instance is apparently the dry lumps of skin around her toenails. Not that I can see any. Jasmine's body is impeccably maintained. These are usually my favorite moments. Post-coitally relaxed, comfortable in our nakedness, luxuriating in the dreamy haze of our brief moments together. Me replicating the perfect curves of her body with my pencil. Yet the guilt, so easy to shelve during the white-hot intensity of our early union, has started to rest uncomfortably in my stomach like a spiky ball of lead, its density increasing daily. Why don't you lie down for a moment so that I can finish my sketch? She pretends not to hear me. Or perhaps she's happy for me to know she's ignoring my question. One foot on the bed and one on the floor, she continues to draw the blade delicately around her toenails, slicing tiny particles of dead skin. The thing is, sometimes things need cutting out of your life. The detritus. The things you can leave behind in your past. The things, and people, that will play no part in your future. My pencil stops scratching on the page, the room growing colder. What are you trying to say, Jasmine? That... We are finished. You're cutting me out of your life. I, I'm just a lump of old skin to be tossed in the bin. I tried to infuse it with humour, but it seems to articulate exactly what she's suggesting. She exhales slowly before speaking, the outward breath buying her some time to arrange her words into order. James, I adore our time together. It can be absolutely fucking electric. I think, think that we have got something special. I don't know if it would work outside of this bloody sex bubble our lives coexist in, but I can't wait forever to find out. I need to know if we have got any sort of future, otherwise the sex will wither and we'll be arguing like an old married couple and I'm not even getting the benefits that my friends assure me come with that bloody terrifying marriage thing. I, I, I never thought you wanted more though. I thought we had an arrangement, uh, an agreement. I, I mean... I struggle to order the words into something coherent. Jasmine is beautiful and vibrant and invigorating, but I've never looked at her beyond the thrill of our illicit liaisons. She speaks brusquely, clearly disappointed with my lackluster response. Well, maybe it's time you started thinking. I've got a busy evening, James, so you'd better run along back to your little family. 
Her smile is wide, yet hard and inflexible. I start pulling on my socks. My head is fuzzy and irritable on the drive home. Thoughts flying at velocity, crashing into one another. Lynn calls, and her voice is warm and comforting. My black ball of guilt increases its mass, churning deep in my gut. Hey, baby. You okay? We miss you. Hi, darling. I'm good, thanks. It won't be long. It was a busy one. You work too hard for us. The concern in her tone further amplifies my guilt. It's no problem. You know that you guys are my world. My tongue is almost paralyzed by my appalling duplicity. Lynn is, of course, too trusting to hear it. Well, we love you too. Tabby misses you big time. She keeps asking when you're coming home. Oh, I won't be long now. Ten minutes, maybe? I feel a sudden longing to be there right now, in the warmth of our little unit, insulated from the cruelty of the world. Brilliant. She'll be a happy little bunny. We've been baking your favorite this afternoon, bao buns. Oh, and she's been asking where your stereo viewer is. She'd like a look. Do you mind? Where is it, honey? I'll make sure she's careful with it. I know it's special to you. Oh, sorry, Linny. I'm not sure. I'll find it for her when I get home. Not long now. Okay, baby. No problem. Drive safe. Hugs when you're back. Hugs, I reply, repeating our little family trademark. Reaching to the passenger seat, I stroke the stereo viewer's smooth red plastic, scratching out a mental note to hide it beneath my seat before going indoors. Then, the crumpled balls of paper were amassing on my bedroom carpet. Each one a sphere of tiny folds overlapping tiny folds, lines and shades exposed here and there. Ideas, concepts and half-hearted intentions evolved into half-lives before being tossed aside. Their voices drifted up from below, muffled bass tones only, dialogue compressed into a thin spectrum of sound, rendered unintelligible. Yet the anger was ringing out loud and clear. The usual looping arguments, familiar and boring. Money, lack of money, how we should spend our money, what little there seemed to be. My abject failures at school, my unwillingness to focus, my lethargy around the house, and my father's close relationship with Maggie from the office, for whom his interest clearly went beyond the scintillating corporate tax analysis they worked on together. As they worked through their marital problems, I worked on a variety of scenarios. Dale Chambers suffocating in the abandoned chest freezer we used to play inside. Dale Chambers bleeding to death under that stupid little dirt bike he'd race around the fields. Dale Chambers mauled to death by the security guard's dogs whose saliva-drenched jaws protected the sprawling car plant on the edge of town. But finally it came to me, my pencil accelerating across the page with noisy scratches. Dale Chambers, head bowed at a sickening angle, body hanging ominously, feet pointing toward the dirt of the forest floor, life fully squeezed from his body, and curled tightly around his neck, digging into his flesh, 
tendons and bones bulging, rendered starkly. Damp, cold, dripping. The wet towel that's robbed him of any further breath. Now. I was starting to wonder if you had found yourself a new muse. I think there's some mileage left in you yet. My eyes flicked between her and the page, capturing the curving lines of her lips. There better not be an old hag staring back at me when you finish this. <laughs> Definitely not. A princess, perhaps. Princess Lynn. It's been almost a week since Jasmine turned cold on me, with no contact since. I've started to wonder if it could be a blessing. Perhaps things have indeed run their course. I realize now, sitting here sketching Lynn, that my family really is everything to me. It's where I need it. The transient bubble of intensity with Jasmine has finally burst, the iridescent particles dissipating into thin air, as if the bubble had never really existed at all. Daddy, why aren't you letting me play with your toy? We're sitting in the snaking row of brake lights. The thought of Tabby's little eyes gazing into the view holes makes me feel nauseous. Oh, I will do, darling. I promise. Maybe later on. But why won't you let me, Daddy? She folds her arms, frowning, her eyes fixed forward in anger. I'm sorry, sweetheart. I'm relieved when we finally reach the school gates. We'll sort something out. After she's marched into the safety of the building, I decide to take a different route home, working the car through the gears and enjoying the liberation of the sleepy country roads. Pulling into a lay-by, I turn and stare into the forest, suddenly realizing where I am, inhaling sharply. I'd slept well that night, all those years ago as a little boy, folding my sketch of Dale into a tidy square, pushing it into the slot, pressing the lever once, twice, pausing for the briefest of moments, and then a final firm press of my forefinger. The following day, I could barely even remember having done it. And then, even when Dale didn't turn up for school, I can't say that it entered my consciousness, beyond the usual life-affirming relief of not having to face him that day. His absence from school wasn't even that unusual. But a few days later, there was talk. Whispers and rumours and gossip. Where was he? Had he run away? Escaped to London to deal drugs? Gone to join the traveller camp his father apparently lived in? Arrested? And then, his mother on the news. Bloodshot eyes, copious tears, tissues passed across by unidentified hands. He's a good boy, really. He ain't never done nothing like this before. The search parties, the dogs, the helicopters. And finally, the discovery. His mother wailing, screaming, falling to the leafy carpet of the forest. His body swinging lightly. The towel grubby, nature already assimilating it into its world. I pulled the stereo viewer to my eyes, my finger hovering over the lever. I pressed down firmly, and the photo is still there, just as it was when I was a child. Mirroring my sketch perfectly, 
His body hangs awkwardly, face bloated, a scene of appalling horror. I'd kept the toy hidden for all these years, tucked away in the distant recesses of the attic, its terrible secret safe from innocent hands. The phone call makes me physically flinch. James, it's Jasmine. We need to talk. Did you think about what we discussed the other day? Pausing, I tried to think of the right words. It's over. You're right. It'll never work in the long term. I want to be with my family. It's best for both of us that we never see each other again. Um, yes, I've given it a lot of thought. And? Emptiness sits between us on the line. Well, I think you're right. I think you deserve better. Okay, James, I agree. But what does that mean? I deserve better in our relationship or I deserve better out of our relationship? Which is it? I pause again before speaking, heart hammering my ribcage. Well, yes, better in our relationship. I think we've definitely got something special, like you say. She pauses this time, considering my words. Really, James? Is that really what you think? Because I actually think that too. I think we'd make a fucking great team, but I need you to be all in, okay? No half measures, it is too late for that. Yes, definitely, it's all or nothing. Oh, thank goodness for that. So, you need to talk to Lynn, James. You need to tell her it's the next step. I think you should do it today. Let's do this properly, a clean start. I'll be honest, if you'd said no, I was planning on telling her today anyway. It feels like the right thing. Wait! I shout, trying unsuccessfully to keep the panic from my words. Sorry, I'm just saying we need to plan this carefully. We don't need to rush. Her tone switches. No, James, this is the thing. We do need to rush. I have told you I'm not waiting forever. My life has been on hold whilst I've been seeing you, James. I've invested a lot. But what about Tabby? The thought of her finding out about Daddy and this strange woman is absolutely unbearable. Jesus, James, she'll have to find out at some point. Look, have you really thought about this? Because it doesn't bloody sound like it. No, I mean, yes, I have. I've given it lots of thought, and I want to commit to you. I really do. I'm just saying I need a bit of time to plan my words. This is a huge change for all of us. She softens a little. I know. I really do. It's massive. But everyone's lives could be better. We're all living a lie at the moment. I know, I reply, trying to soothe her. We'll make everything right. Thank you, James. Look, let's talk later. Then you've got some time to think. But let's not allow this to drag on, yeah? Yes, Jasmine, absolutely. We'll get things sorted out. Okay, darling. I'm really excited, you know. I realise it's going to be tough for both of us. I... I love you, okay? The world becomes darker, like someone twisting the master dimmer switch downwards. I know, Jasmine. Me too. I terminate the call and toss the phone onto the passenger seat. Pushing my head back, I force the air out of my lungs with a huff. I turn my gaze to the side. The forest is dense, dark and ominous. I see his body as if it's still there, swinging like a pendulum in slow motion under the morning breeze. A skeleton, stripped bare by the birds and insects, rain-battered and encrusted with filth. Back and forth, 
the teeth dirty and jagged, grinning inanely. Reaching into the glove compartment, I pull out my sketchbook and flick through the pages. And then, she's there. Her horizontal form, so perfectly proportioned and beautiful in her nakedness, curved and smooth and wonderful. Staring at Jasmine for a moment, the thoughts flood my mind. The unbridled electricity of our sex, the moments of laughter and pure joy, the clandestine, untouched world where we existed, insulated from the miserable mundanity of real life, with its pressures and responsibilities and soul-draining wretchedness. And then I'm moving the pencil again, enhancing, tweaking, changing, erasing here and there, and replacing. First, it's the position of the hands. The right hand no longer supports her head, but instead lies limp, upturned, the fingers spread. The left lies similarly helpless, resting on her naked body, facing the ceiling. And then the head itself, no longer rotated towards the viewer with eyes flirtatious and dreamy. Now it's resting, facing upwards, the eyes closed, the wisp of a smile rubbed out. Next, I focus on the wrists, grabbing my 7B to craft the jagged opening slicing up the arm, the blood flow copious, spraying the wall and gushing onto the carpet, enormous puddles staining it liberally. And finally, fallen to the floor, the shiny glint of the blade, its diabolical work complete, all life extinguished beneath the cruel efficiency of its cut. Drawing a deep breath, I fold it carefully, rotating the stereo viewer to expose the little slot, pushing my work into the device with a forefinger. I raise it to my eyes, my finger coming to rest on the lever. I think of Tabitha and press the lever once. I think of Lynn and press the lever a second time. I think of Jasmine and pause for a moment alone with my thoughts and the forest. My finger hovers, the plastic cold beneath my touch. My phone vibrates hard on the passenger seat, accompanied by a loud beep. I lean my head to the side to read the message. James, I love you. Jasmine, kiss. Taking a breath, I push the lever down for the third time. After the death of their mother, two sisters are sent to live with their aunt and uncle, a situation made all the worse by the uncle being an awful man. And in this tale, shared with us by author John M. Floyd, one girl discovers there are things in the woods far more monstrous than a creepy uncle. Performing this tale are Nicole Doolin, Mary Murphy, Mick Wingert, Kristen DiMercurio, and Sarah Thomas. So listen to the voices if you dare, 
you may find a way out near the wading pool. Susan Weeks had never seen a monster before. At the time it happened, she was sitting alone at the kitchen table eating an afternoon snack of chocolate cookies. Her school gear lay in a pile near her right elbow. A writing tablet, a set of colored pencils, two third-grade textbooks, and a lunchbox. To her left, had she cared to look in that direction, a window offered a view of the vegetable garden that bordered the woods behind the house. Susan finished her second cookie and licked her fingers. This was a good day, she decided. School was done. Her aunt and her sister Darlene had gone shopping. The breeze through the open window was cool and pleasant. And best of all, Uncle Felix wasn't home yet. Susan Weeks hated her Uncle Felix. So did her sister. They had good reason. Felix was almost always drunk. And when he was drunk, he was a problem. Susan, who was nine, had endured regular beatings during the six months she and Darlene had spent with their aunt and uncle since their mother's death. Darlene, who was 15, had endured a different kind of problem, or at least the threat of it. And though Susan didn't really understand it all, she was old enough to know there was something odd about the look in Uncle Felix's eyes whenever Darlene was around. But right now, Felix wasn't home and it was a good day and the spring sunshine was warm and tingling on her left shoulder. Susan popped the last of the chocolate cookies into her mouth and leaned back in her chair. She could never remember afterward what made her turn and look out the window. But when she did, she saw a sight that stopped her chewing and froze the blood in her veins. Something terrible was standing at the edge of the woods. It was about the height of a tall man, over six feet. But all resemblance ended there. Its head was huge and misshapen, its body hairy, its snout long and pointed like a wolf's. The face itself reminded Susan of pictures she had seen of mandrels and baboons. Fangs three inches long lined its grinning mouth. And it was staring at her. It was standing there in the weeds beyond the garden, completely motionless, its head slightly lowered, and it was watching her. After a moment, the creature turned away, a grotesque statue come to life, and shuffled toward the woods. Just before it melted into the shadows, it turned and gave her one last look. And something about its eyes. Sitting there at the kitchen table, Susan Weeks felt a chill that reached to the core of her soul. Only when the monster had vanished did she realize she'd been holding her breath. Instantly, her muscles unlocked. She clapped her hands over her eyes, spat out her half-chewed cookie, and gasped for air like a drowning sailor. Her head began to clear a little. Her heart began to slow down. She forced herself to peek out the window again, this time through the trembling spaces between her fingers. Nothing there. Just the woods and the weed-choked garden basking peacefully in the sun. The thing, whatever it had been, was gone. But the image was there, burned into her brain. The fearsome grinning face, the teeth, the matted hair, the somehow knowing look in its eyes. 
It was the eyes that had kept her from screaming. Then she heard something move behind her, and this time she did scream. Her face contorting as she grabbed the edge of the table and swung around in her chair. What the hell's the matter with you, girl? Felix Bowman scowled at her, gave the window and the ejected cookie a suspicious glance, and looked at her again. Susan couldn't tell if he was drunk or not, which usually meant he was. She had often wondered how a kind, sweet woman like Aunt Helen, her own mother's sister, could have married a slug like Felix. Answer me. What mischief are you up to? As he spoke, his narrow eyes swept the room, searching for evidence. His big fists clenched and unclenched. Still trembling, Susan opened her mouth to tell him about the monster. But nothing came out. His eyes narrowed even further. Huh. Something is going on, ain't it? A crooked smile stretched his face. What you done now, little gal? Again, she tried to speak to tell him of the horrible creature she had seen through the window. Again, no words came. In the blink of an eye, Felix's belt was off, hissing snake-like through the loops of his jeans. He doubled the belt in his fist and slapped it hard across the tabletop, two inches from Susan's right hand. The sound was like a pistol shot in the small room. Tell me! Yes, Susan thought, tell him. So she opened her mouth and said, clear as crystal... She's in the woods. Felix's coal-black eyebrows drew themselves together. What? Susan just sat there stunned. The four words she had just spoken were not her own. She had uttered them with her own mouth, her own tongue, but someone else had put them there. She didn't even know what they meant. Even Felix, no Rhodes Scholar, apparently knew something was amiss, probably because her voice sounded different. He cocked his head to one side like some overgrown evil puppy. Who's in the woods? Darlene. She's taking a bath. Felix blinked. She's what? There's no water in the house. Darlene wanted to take a bath after school, and she couldn't. So she got a bar of soap and went out to the wading pool in the woods. Susan swallowed. I'm supposed to watch. Make sure nobody goes down the path. Just for a moment, as this strange message was being told, Susan saw a gleam in her uncle's eye. Then his better judgment, what little there was of it, seemed to take over. What are you trying to pull? There ain't nothing wrong with the water. Susan was well aware of that. She had washed her hands at the kitchen sink 15 minutes ago. For an instant, all thoughts of the monster and of the strange voice disappeared as she considered the beating she was about to get. Felix hated to be lied to, and Susan and his belt were old acquaintances. But all she could do now was watch as her uncle marched to the sink and, to prove his point, twisted the handle of the cold water faucet. Nothing happened. Well, darn. He tried the hot tap. Not a drop. Susan Weeks didn't say a word. After the things she had seen and heard over the last few minutes, she was beyond surprise. More than anything else, she wanted to cry. But she didn't cry. She didn't even change her expression. Just as the monster's eyes had a moment ago forced her to keep silent, 
the odd voice inside her head now told her to do the same and to try to act naturally. Ten feet away, Felix Bowman had come to a startling conclusion. I want her ears off. Slowly he raised his head and their eyes met. Then he turned to the window, staring hard at the narrow path that led from the garden to the forest. He had a weird smile on his face, and Susan could almost read his mind. She knew he was picturing her sister Darlene at the wading pool just past the edge of the woods. His eyes were fixed like a laser on the spot where the path melted into the shadows. Susan looked, too, and even though she could see nothing through the dark, leafy foliage, she knew, somehow she knew, that the creature was there, crouching near the pool, just out of sight. Felix turned to face her. The goofy smile was gone. I got something to do, girl. You go to your room and stay there. He held the folded belt up for emphasis. Yes, sir. Without another thought, she stood and scooped up her scrap of cookie and her books. It occurred to her, as she fled through the hallway door, that those last two words had been spoken in her own voice. Felix didn't seem to have noticed. He was still gazing out the window toward the garden. Once in her room, Susan dumped her things onto her bed, counted to fifty, and hurried back to the kitchen. She arrived just in time to see her uncle creeping like a thief into the shadowy woods. Then he vanished from sight. Susan eased herself into her chair. For a full minute or more, she sat there watching. She didn't really know what she was watching for or waiting for. She saw nothing but the forest. Then she sensed, rather than heard, movement behind her. For the third time that afternoon, Susan felt her heart leap into her throat. She whirled around in her chair. Her sister was standing in the doorway. Darlene! With an effort, she resisted the urge to run to her and hug her. I thought you were shopping with Aunt Helen. I've been at Debbie Olson's, listening to music. Cautiously, Darlene entered the room, her eyes glancing everywhere at once. Who were you talking to a minute ago? Uncle Felix. I know that. But who else? I heard another voice. Susan hesitated. Uh, it was just me. What... What exactly did you hear? Darlene studied her sister a moment, then seemed to relax. She crossed the room and took a drinking glass from the overhead cabinet. Not much. I heard someone, you, I guess, say, about ten minutes. Then I heard Felix say he had something to do, and he told you to go to your room. He sounded a little funny, so I hid in the bathroom for a while. She gave the door an uneasy look. Where is he, anyway? He's gone. Susan found herself watching with interest as Darlene held her glass under the cold tap and turned the faucet handle. Water jetted into the glass. Somehow this didn't surprise Susan at all. Darlene shut off the water and looked at her younger sister, who was still staring at the faucet. You make it sound like he's gone for good. Their eyes met and held. What if he was? Darlene's face darkened. Then I'd start believing in miracles. And what about Aunt Helen? I think she would, too. The kitchen had gone quiet. Darlene stared into her water glass, and Susan stared out the window, at the path leading to the forest. Somewhere down the street, a dog barked. After a minute or so, Darlene drained her glass. 
I gotta get back to Debbie's. She patted her shirt pocket. I just came home to get some CDs. You are okay, aren't you? (sighs) Yeah, I'm okay. Darlene started to say something, seemed to think better of it, then nodded and walked to the door. Darlene? She stopped in the doorway. Who did you think you heard? What? Susan felt strangely calm. You told me you heard another voice. Who did it sound like? A silence passed. It sounded like Mother. This time it was Susan who nodded. Very slowly, lost in her own thoughts, she turned and looked out the window again. The breeze had died down now, and the shadows were longer. Nothing stirred at the edge of the woods. We discussed unique professions earlier. Here's another one. Sculpting grave monuments, ornate works of art commemorating the dead. And in this tale, shared with us by author Manon Lysette, we meet Wilhelmina, a woman whose sculptures have the power to welcome the newly deceased to either paradise or damnation. Performing this tale are Peter Lewis, Aaron Lillis, Mary Murphy, and Matthew Bradford. So live a good life, lest you fail to heed the moral of this story, a tale about the Smith Grave Monument. Wilhelmina knocked on the door with a dry, calloused hand. An older woman with sunken eyes opened and led her into the foyer where the rest of the family waited. The house was cold in a way that went beyond temperature, every face solemn, each glance stolen. There were at least ten family members, if her count was correct, cramped in the small space, and yet not even one of them dared to sit on the armchair by the fireplace, the one belonging to the late Anthony Smith. He was a good man. There were a few nods of approval towards Wilhelmina, but mostly silence reigned. The old matriarch wrung her hands so tight, if her skin hadn't already been so pale, it would have turned white. She asked the question weighing on all their minds. Can you do it? Wilhelmina had been asking herself that very same question on the walk over. Now, in front of their desperate expressions, it was harder not to be swayed one way or another. I can, but I shouldn't. Last time had gone so poorly, though she'd been assured the fault didn't lie with her. The family had kept a secret from her. Yes. She immediately scanned the room to gauge the family's reaction, but it was so oddly varied she wasn't sure what to make of it. Some showed relief, others a hint of silent distress. 
Regret crept into her like a mouse in a burrow, making its home in her stomach. She could feel its whiskers tickling the undersides of her skin. But to question the family was to question their integrity, their very honor, and in her position, it just wasn't done. With a final worried glance around the room, Wilhelmina took a step towards the door. I'll be back with the monument in a week's time. If you have any... She paused, choosing her words carefully. Concerns? Please make them known before the ceremony. Their eyes followed her like portraits on the wall as she left the house. She tried her best to swallow the apprehension. By all accounts, he had been a good man. There was no reason things would go wrong this time. Wilhelmina found solace in her craft. She picked a slab of marble for the purity of its color and the uniqueness of the pattern of gray rivers weaving through it as though part of a foreign landscape. She etched Anthony's grave monument with extreme care, at times deviating from her original design where she felt the added flair would serve it well, or where the pattern called for it. Every line she carved in an upward motion with the hopes of helping his soul along its journey. As she worked, the sounds of screams haunted her memories. Guilt clung to her like marble dust. And even though she'd been assured there was nothing she could have done differently, the words rang hollow whenever she thought of the children now left without a family. What if she'd made a mistake? What if her monument had been faulty? What if they'd been innocent the whole time? What if she wasn't as skilled as she thought she was? She gasped as she came just short of nicking the edge of one of the grooves. The repercussions of such an imperfection could have had catastrophic consequences. Hands shaking, she had no choice but to call it an early night and hope her head would be clear by morning. The next day, she punished herself by slowing her pace to a snail's crawl. Some could call it taking the proper precautions, but such restrictions are the death of art. The carving became less natural as a result, precise in a way that left no room to breathe, stripping the piece of its original organic flow. Pressure was mounting, but Wilhelmina did her best to keep her worries at bay. Eventually, she regained enough confidence to return to a more natural pace. As promised, in a week, Wilhelmina delivered the most beautiful, ornate grave monument the Smith family had ever seen. It would be the jewel of the cemetery. It was so large, it took a hoisting system and three men to carry it to the family plot and gently lower it at the head of Anthony Smith's grave. There, it seemed to shine in the sunlight, a beacon of hope a pillar to heaven itself. It was a thing of beauty, but it was missing one final piece. That night, the Smith family gathered, with Wilhelmina holding a polished garnet the size of a fist meant for a hole carved at the very top of the tombstone. The conditions for success were strict, and Wilhelmina waited until the moonlight finally peeked through the clouds before she climbed the ladder and glanced one final time at the group hoping for objections, but hearing none. Today, we lay to rest Anthony Smith, 
Once I place this garnet on the pedestal, the door to the afterlife will open, carrying his soul to heaven. If anyone has reason to believe he will not be accepted, speak now or forever hold your peace. She thought she saw a movement from one of them, a flinch, perhaps. But in the darkness, with nothing but candlelight around the plot, she couldn't be sure. She let the paws hang in the air, too long for comfort. Still, there was nothing, nothing audible, at least. Very well, then I shall proceed. Wilhelmina closed her eyes, took a deep breath, and slipped the garnet into its groove. Though this was the first time it had been integrated into the piece, it felt like Cinderella's shoe. Once it clicked into place, the tombstone began to vibrate. From the crowd, she heard a single wait, but by then, it was already too late. The vibrations increased in speed and ferocity, generating an unsettling humming noise as air passed through the carved grooves. An unnatural heat radiated off the stone, and Wilhelmina hoped it was only caused by the friction, not a taste of the fires that might come. Either way, she braced herself and remained on the ladder behind the monument where she hoped she'd be safe. Moments later, screams cut through the silence of the night. The first came from a shrill voice belonging to the old matriarch as her skin caught ablaze. The intensity shifted low, high, low, high, in an almost rhythmic way, like an ambulant siren. The family members near her staggered back in shock. Not even one lifted a hand to help her, though there wasn't anything they could have done even if they'd tried. Her eyes rolled to the back of her skull and she fell forward, leaving behind a dusty afterimage that was still screaming, albeit silently now. It was then the charred hands stretched out of the now burning red garnet, reaching for that afterimage for her very soul. The gnarled fingers wrapped themselves around her throat and yanked her ethereal form straight off the ground and into the orb. She tried to pull herself out, but in the end she succumbed to her fate. Wilhelmina held the ladder in a vice-like grip, it was happening, again, just like last time, just like with the Bramford family. Was this her fault? Had she made a mistake? She checked her work a hundred times over for imperfections, but there hadn't been any, had there? A circle of fire surrounded the group, cutting them off from the outside world. The flames were high and hot. Those who tried to jump them would find themselves incinerated at supernatural speed, and while that might have seemed like a blessing compared to the slower deaths of other family members, their souls would be left to burn in the flames until the others were dealt with. One of the younger smiths, Wilhelmina hadn't caught his name, but he must have been in his early twenties, called out to her. Make it stop! Make it stop! And she, from her vantage point, could only shake her head, powerless to do anything. She had given them every opportunity to speak up. Why hadn't they? If Anthony Smith had been a good man, this never would have happened. 
The young Smith suddenly fell over from a pair of dark hands tugging on his ankles. His pant leg burned and his skin sizzled under the touch. He screamed for help, clawing at the ground while he was pulled ever closer to the grave monument. It took a long time for the fire to engulf him and separate him from his body. In the time it took for him to suffer his fate, three more smiths met theirs. The screams were too much. Wilhelmina had to cover her ears. There was nothing she could do to stop the slaughter as one after the other the family members succumbed to their sin of silence. When the cries of torment finally stopped, the monument melted over the burial plot, coating it like molten lava and locking it in place like the door to a cage. All that was left of Wilhelmina's elegant craftsmanship was the garnet, now half encased in igneous rock. What exactly Anthony Smith had done, what the family was covering up, she'd never know. And, as a result, she'd never be entirely sure whether he'd done anything at all. There would always be a doubt in the back of her mind that maybe, just maybe, she'd made a grave mistake. In our final tale, we meet a group of 1,000 ghosts. Perhaps you remember them from a previous tale. This time, however, they face an unusual obstacle in the form of a wayward soul hiding amongst them. But in this tale, shared with us by author Marcus Demanda, we learn they'll need to eject the intruder as well as find a new child to take their place. Performing this tale, are Mike Delgadio, Jessica McAvoy, Nicole Doolin, Graham Rowett, Aaron Lillis, Atticus Jackson, Jesse Cornett, Ellie Hirschman, Jeff Clement, Matthew Bradford, Dan Zapula, Kyle Akers, and Mick Wingert. So watch out for someone new, someone who shouldn't be there, someone who might be the stowaway. The Sunrise Nursing Home off of Route 1 has always had a special place in my heart. In Northern Virginia, there's no shortage of long-term care facilities for the elderly. But this place, with its welcoming exterior of red brick and white limestone, its wide-open lobbies and comfortable, clean apartments, is, I think, the best of them. It has a full staff, caring, and attendant. The food, from all I've heard, isn't bad at all. So says the internet, anyway. It's not like I'd really know. Until two nights ago, I hadn't been here since Helen passed on. I'd kept her safe her entire life, protected her from all the others. I'd checked in on her from time to time, though she rarely knew it. I said goodbye to her here. After a full and mostly happy life, 
she died of natural causes back in 1972. 42 years, I thought. Place hasn't changed much. The elevator dinged open on the third floor. I stepped out into the hall dressed in a simple leather jacket, t-shirt, and blue jeans. These had been purchased to fit Hannah Cooper, one of the newer voices, but I'd managed my way into them just fine. Always been on the wiry side myself. And I still hoped I'd be able to call Hannah to the surface. I doubted it, but maybe. From deep down inside of me, she cried out, asked me to wait. She wasn't sure. (laughs) But I was. I'd been there the night Hannah had joined us. I'd seen it all. And really, she'd already done all she had to do. I had her present with me right under the upturned palm of my hand. And her mother, Mrs. Cooper, wasn't so nice. Not like Hannah. Not like my Helen. I kept walking. Room 3E was five doors down on the left. Orderlies rolled metal trolleys into and out of rooms, picking up finished and half-finished dinner trays. They muttered kind words I could almost decipher through the drywall. But other voices, closer to the surface than Hannah's, drowned them out. Be quick. This isn't safe. You're not first in line yet. We could be stopped here. It might wake up. We'll be trapped if it does. Be quiet. We have an account to settle. This is what we do. Grumblings from inside. Echoes of discontent bouncing off the walls of my skull. Honestly, I didn't understand what their problem was. We'd already been here the day before. Put the old woman and the front office staff at ease about me. If not strictly speaking about us. To the staff, I was only a bespectacled teenaged boy, a distant relation. To the old woman, I was deliverance. Uh, This is too risky. You don't listen. You never listen. Sure I do. I thought in return, stopping at the closed door at 3E and giving it a soft knock. How could I not? You never shut up. You hear, but you never... I opened the door, and the voices inside my head fell quiet. It was go time. We were in the room. Might as well finish. There are two things that concern us, we who occupy the host. The first, of course, is getting out. It's pandemonium in here, a virtual purgatory between the ears. But it can only hold so many of us at a time. Every so often, under certain conditions, the body takes in a new one and releases its eldest to whatever's next. The second thing we do is settle our accounts with the living, with the ones who drove us over the edge when we too were alive. That is to say... We kill. I lifted the needle from the portable turntable Mrs. Cooper had propped up on a snack table by her bed, silencing the voice of Gospel Elvis, and pulled up a chair. 
Hope you're hungry. I nodded to the box. It was bright red with a white bow on top, but the top wasn't tied down. It could simply be lifted away, revealing the special gift inside. Hannah was hard at work this morning getting this ready for you. Mrs. Cooper was seated upright at the head of the bed, her eyes clear and aware, much more so than they had been yesterday. Looked like her nightgown had been pressed wrinkle-free, too. The box was right in front of her, cradled in her hands on the pullover tray attached to the bed rails. In my periphery, I noticed a cockroach skittering around at the bottom of a wall corner, seeking shadows away from the lamp I just clicked on. No place is perfect, I thought. Sunrise was still better than most. How is she? Mrs. Cooper drew my attention back. It was for the best. We were on a schedule. The stowaway, the thing that kept me from moving to the front of the line, really could wake at any moment. Apart from being dead, oh, Hannah's fine, Mrs. Cooper. Been talking to her all day. She's just a little shy is all. It's been so long. Come on now, open the box. Her fingers hovered over the edges. May I see her? Can I talk to her? Is that possible? I don't think talking to her is a good idea right now. You can speak to her through me. Say whatever you like. She'll hear you. But first, open the box, please. Time's wasting. With frail but unshaking fingers, she lifted away the box top. Inside, on a wide paper plate, was a complete but single-serve sized cake of red velvet with bright white icing. She smiled at it, and I smiled too. Oh, how delightful. She lifted it out of the box and set it on the tray, and then fished around until she found the fork. This last part was my contribution, and it was hard, bright steel just in case Mrs. Cooper decided not to partake in the treat her daughter had worked on all morning for her. Looks just like I used to make. It's precisely what you used to make, Mrs. Cooper. Truth be told, it wasn't as big, but it did have a hearty helping of the same sedative she had used against her own children. Wouldn't take much of that to do the trick. Remind me, what are the house rules? She scooped up a forkful of cake. First, always say your prayers before dinner and bed. I do, I thought. Every night at midnight. Like fucking clockwork. From within me, the voice of Hannah Cooper, distant and wordless, wailing. Others chimed in. But it seemed they had come over to my side now that the deed was being done. Shut up, Hannah. Be silent, girl. It's for the best. It's working. She's really going to eat it. Oh, good. Second, never watch God bring in the new day. You... I thought, 
were one crazy-ass monster bitch. How many kids did you feed this shit to before they finally arrested you in 1979? And third, always finish your cake. With that, she took the first bite. The voices again grew quiet as Mrs. Cooper put down the last of the red velvet, leaning back against her pillow and shutting her eyes. She never did say anything to Hannah. Instead, she prayed, her lips fluttering out little whispers. Our father, who art in heaven. I got up, went for the door. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. I closed my hand over the doorknob. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And felt my vision tunnel just as the old woman's voice began to fail completely. God damn, I thought. Son of a bitch. What timing. And lead us not into temptation. It was awake. I was being kicked out, or, more accurately, drawn back in, down to my proper place. And the body of the host, as me, would be lying right here, out in the open, in the bedroom of an elderly patient I had just tranquilized to fucking death. Who are you? I screamed at it in my mind. Well, from our mind. And why don't you ever do anything? But deliver us from evil. (gasps) Mrs. Cooper finished, exhaling her soul from behind me in a long, rattling wheeze. Dimly, I wondered which way she went, up or down. She certainly wouldn't come here, into the host. Ours was a kids-only purgatory, where the dead remained forever young. No grown-ups allowed. I dropped to my knees, fell over to my side, helpless. The stowaway was awake. It was front of the line. Curious, there was the cockroach again, right by the door. And then, then, my hand reached out to it, though I'd given it no command for it to do so, snatched it up, brought it to my mouth. 
I sucked it down. I don't remember what happened after that, but when I came back to myself, when I rose back to the surface and regained the host's power of sight, I was back home. We were back home, in the little house behind the boarded-up convenience store in Manassas, the place where we currently kept all of our possessions and all of our information. The place where we had, among other things, a desktop computer and a list. I was getting better on that computer all of the time, though I still had much to learn. Finding myself lying flat on my back, I blinked my eyes at the ceiling, then glanced over to the computer chair. Tonight we had settled an account. That meant it was time to get back to our other job. Finding the next new soul. The replacement. The banishment of that thing that yet stood in my way. I sat up from the floor forced myself back up to my feet, stretched, went over to the desk with the computer and sat down, thought about the list for a full minute, then made a new document of my own instead. To the children on Mary Beth's list, this is what it looks like from the bottom, from the back of the line. Darkness, unbroken and absolute. I'm not talking about a bedroom with the light off kind of dark. I'm talking about a darkness that erases reality. A blackness so complete, you can't even see your dreams. Not that you ever sleep. You'll never sleep again. There is no pain, most of the time. You'll have no body to feel it, except one. And it's not really yours. There are a thousand of us in here and only one can control the body at any time. You can sense it, but you cannot see through its eyes. Not yet. Who knows? Perhaps the line will move again one day soon. If so, I will become first in line, and you'll move forward too. Not very far, mind you. You have a long way to go. Mary Beth will come after me, and all 997 of the others before it's your turn. But even though you don't have ears to hear, even though it doesn't make sense, you can hear us anyway. We're all about you. We're all above you. We're everywhere but underneath you. Because you're at the bottom, scrabbling at the emptiness without fingers, seeing nothing, hearing all. It is the lamentation of the dead who went nowhere. A condemned chorus of forgotten fools. Feel free to chip in. No one on the outside will hear you. It's not like you have a mouth, or a throat, or lungs for that matter. But we'll hear you. Those voices have cried out in my mind for more than a hundred years. Early on, I think I went quite mad. For decades, I was hardly ever allowed to the surface. Except for our nightly repentance ritual. Oh, I almost forgot to mention that. Just once, every day, you will rise up and see. You'll know where we are. You'll see yourself and what you did. You will confess. I was Alistair Charles Hutchinson. I loved a girl. 
But that love was not returned. In June 1912, when I was 15 years old, I hanged myself, and I repent. The first in line calls the second. The second calls the third. It will be hours before they get to you. You might even see a hint of sunrise when you do it, if the host is outside at the time or in a room with a view. Because it, we, are still real. We walk the earth among the living. It's easy to forget that from the bottom, from the back of the line, when you're swallowed back into the void after your repentance, when your only company is the screaming of the damned. They do get quieter as you move along. So slowly you don't realize it at first. The madness unclenches just a little, enough for you to remember how much worse it was when you first got here. Higher up, near the front of the line, they don't scream as much. What they do most of the time is talk, make suggestions to whoever's in control. They nag, they press, they want out. I've been here so long, and I've been cheated. We were carrying a stowaway, it seems. I had no idea, nor, I am sure, did Mary Beth. But those others who were ahead of me, they knew. They were already part of the host when it arrived. They would have invited it in. Perhaps they didn't understand it. I sure as hell don't. This thing, whatever it is, doesn't come out at midnight. It's an emptiness in the echoing void. A nothingness within our nothing that must be banished for the line to move again. The last time we moved the line, we brought in a boy who killed himself for failing his English class. Really, it's enough to make an old ghost laugh, if it didn't make me so very sad. And angry. But not as angry as I got when the line moved, but didn't move me to the front. That pissed me off mightily. There is only this thing ahead of me now. This stowaway. And it never does anything. The line has stalled. We haven't gone anywhere in a long while. I think perhaps the stowaway sleeps most of the time, though I cannot understand how. There is only one possibility that might explain it. I believe that this unfortunate, silent soul must have been brought in by mistake. It does not belong. It is not counted among the thousand. But it is in my way. Now, here is a curious thing. I can, from time to time, take control. I can begin the midnight ritual and even summon the others. Mary Beth and I have learned much from those newest to the host. The youngest was still alive just two years ago. He understood computers. He taught us cell phones. It is September 13th, 2014. I am, if you count my time among the living, 117 years old. For 102 of those years, I've been trapped here. I won't be here forever. I will break free. I'll find a way. And to those lost souls on Mary Beth's list, if you're reading this, now you know. Take my advice. 
Be careful where you kill yourself. If we're close when you do it, we're going to get you. I'd prefer it if the one we take, the one who ends it and moves the line, truly deserves to be here. But that's just me. Most of us aren't so particular. Mary Beth whispered from the dark. Don't you dare. Alistair, don't send that. You'll ruin us. And wouldn't that be a shame? You worry too much. Anyone ever tell you that? I moved the cursor up and to the left, to the toolbar. I found the save button and clicked it, closed out of the document. When I reopened it, Everything I had typed was still there. Incredible. <sighs> Mary Beth sighed, but she didn't say anything. Didn't pester. I was, by now, well-versed in navigating the internet, but I'd never done computer writing before. I frowned at the name under the icon. New Microsoft Word document. A little help here? But she didn't help. I closed my eyes, sought the reservoir of information that was the new boy. He was crying again, lonely and scared, just like yesterday and the day before. It was all very standard. He'd adjust. I rooted around in his memory until I found what I was looking for. I moved the cursor again, changed the name under the icon. A warning from Alistair. Mary Beth, meanwhile, had moved. She spoke as though right behind my eyes. Focus, Alistair. You don't know how long it'll be asleep this time. I hated when she did that. I clicked open the other document, the one labeled Potential Targets. I read the names. There were 22 of them, none of them younger than 12, none older than 17. Each name was accompanied by a paragraph summary of what we knew about them, why they might choose to end it. There were blue hyperlinks under most of them as well, secret passages over wires and telephone lines that would take us to where they communicated electronically. We had home addresses email addresses, even phone numbers on more than a few. This is amazing. I could get used to this. I can learn all of this in no time. This is fun. Neither Mary Beth nor the others can hear my thoughts when I willfully shut them out. Frustrating for them. Unusual, too. But then everyone's different. We all have our talents. Mary Beth can summon poison from the host's lungs and spit it back out. I can't do that. But the names on this list, they were too far away. The closest one, a 13-year-old girl named Gail Hastings, lived 40 miles away in Fredericksburg. I added two more names to the list. The discovery of chat rooms and Facebook led me to a freshman in high school who was having a difficult time making new friends at the start of the school year. I hadn't found any pictures of her yet, 
but I had read the transcripts of several of her conversations, the threats she had made against herself in retaliation for their bullying. Like Hannah Cooper, this one was from Fairview, and Fairview wasn't too far away. Not too far at all. Who are they? Alistair, what are you doing? We have plenty of names already. But the other one, Ricky Harlow, age 13, didn't waste time talking to hateful phantoms over the internet. No, what I'd learned from him had come from hospital records, medical records, police records. The host does have certain connections among the living, information that has been passed down in its collective consciousness since time out of mind. Those of us who are near the front can access it. The closer we get, the more we see. Ricky lived here in Manassas. None of the others were as close as he was. We wouldn't have to go far. Playing it safe, Mary Beth. Staying close in case the stowaway wakes up again. You should be happy. Mary Beth fretted over everything. Not that I blamed her. She had a pretty shitty life, even by our standards. Nor was I in a particularly good mood myself. I was hungry. When one of us got hungry, we all did. Thankfully, we never disagreed in the matter of food. Outsiders will, no doubt, consider our appetites strange. But you know what they say. There's just no arguing taste. Dinner time. Then, I supposed, back to work. I dared to hope the others would be quieter on a full stomach. The house we occupied was condemned, but no one ever checked on it. No more than they did the abandoned old store by the side of the road that concealed it. We kept the computer, refrigerator, and freezer running on generator power. We didn't need heat or air conditioning. We didn't own a television or anything useless like that. In the kitchen, I found the raw, rotten steak cubes and the browned apple slices atop the oven we rarely used, just as I had set them out last night. There, too, the Ziploc bag of maggots I'd bought two days ago that seemed to breathe as a single living thing, although not as energetically as yesterday. Many of them would be dead now. Didn't matter. It would still be good. I opened the bag, sprinkled them over dinner. I popped a cube into my mouth, sucked on it with my eyes closed, felt the maggots twitching on my tongue. When the flavor started to die, I swallowed the cube whole and popped in another. Taking out the sheet of plastic, upon which the whole repast marinated in a thin puddle of steak blood, I moved for the kitchen table and stopped. My hands. The backs of my hands. The veins stood out, greenish, black, and pulsing. The skin rippled. The fingernails glistened with the thick, sticky, pinkish blood of the host. One of them popped off whole and fell to the floor. A cockroach pushed itself out from the inside of my finger, and it also fell to the floor, as if in pursuit. I swooned. 
my head swimming, vision clouding. I fumbled for the counter, letting the host's dinner splatter at my feet. Mary Beth had been right. Already the stowaway had wakened again. I spit out the meat, only realizing afterward that three of my teeth had come out with it. I clutched at my stomach, feeling it turn over, hearing my guts clench from the insides. Get out! Get out of us! You don't belong here! Inside, the others were screaming. They felt it. Everything that I felt. And they could do nothing. Their cries were like knives, slicing at the sides of my brain. Our brain. Us. We shared everything. But not with the stowaway. Not with that. Or did we? I doubled over, forced myself straight again, heaved against my will, and vomited up a stream of cockroaches and blood that splashed down in a torrent over the stove's top. It congealed to a strange symmetry, identical on either side, like a Rorschach test. It looked almost human, that blood, bright red instead of pink. Inside it, the cockroaches hopped and kicked and swam, flapping their wings and clicking and chittering. Whether in terror or delight, I could not have said. And the shape, the form the blood had assumed, it was a face. It had a mouth of its own, stretched wide as though in a silent scream. There was an empty space for its nose that appeared to breathe out more cockroaches. The two empty spaces that approximated eyes alternately filled and then cleared again, as though blinking at me. Mary Beth called out from the depths, her voice terrified, disbelieving. Alistair. Alistair, what is it? Oh my god. I think... I shook my head. I didn't want to hear this. That's real blood, Alistair. That thing is alive. And the others from behind her. It's out. What are you waiting for? Kill it, Alistair. Kill it before it kills us. Why? I wondered. If we die, we're set free, aren't we? Isn't that what we really want? The face on the stovetop, born of blood and swimming with pestilence, laughed out loud. I held my hand up to my face, watched it flake away a finger at a time, my forearm dissolving into a dripping and fluttering mass of chittering bugs. The body broke apart from the inside. It disintegrated, flowing into a river of cockroaches that spilled out of Hannah Cooper's jacket and pants like a biblical plague out of Egypt. And again, my world went black. There now. Isn't that better? Quieter, yes? Keep moving, please. Just as you've been doing. Yes. I said to the dark, to the new void that wasn't the inside of the host. 
I had a sense that I was still part of the host, but was also, for the moment, outside of it. I couldn't see anything, but I could feel six insectile legs propelling me forward, as though they were my own, yet under command. The stowaway's voice was real. It was part of the real world. But in my mind, the only thought voice I could hear, apart from the stowaways, was mine. Keep going. Must keep going. Straight ahead now. Straight ahead. Move. 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 Left now. Turn left. Moving. 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 Wherever we were, the place reeked of human filth. We're nearing the end, Alistair. Up now. Scuttle up. Must keep going. Must keep going. Right now. Moving. Moving. What do you think, Alistair? Do you prefer this to the hell you've been living low these past, what is it, 100-some years? Is this better? Yes. I answered him, though I knew not how. I was so small, and I didn't have a proper mouth for speaking. I was one of the cockroaches, and my movements were controlled by the stowaway. All of us were. Dimly, as my blackened eyes began to adjust, I saw some of them about me, flitting down small corridors, some of them ahead of me, some veering off down separate paths, others behind me. An army of bugs navigating a network of pipes. No, a plumbing system. The water stank of old, wet shit. And it was true. The quiet was all about me. The rest of the host, one to each cockroach I assumed, fanned out going this way and that, until finally I was alone. And the commands I followed, the thoughts that spoke in my voice, stopped. I stopped. And again the stowaway spoke to me. I've dispersed the host, Alistair, so that you and I might have this moment. It's the only way I know of that I can do it, and it'll be the same for you after I'm gone, when your time has come at last. Do you understand? I put it together. Whatever I eat, I can become. I can scatter the host, direct it at will. But there were other things not so clear to me. Who are you? Me? I'm one of you, of course. Or I was. Long ago. No, don't trouble yourself. It's all very complicated. There's much more to do while we're here. What did he mean, was? 
Oh, very well. Short version. I occupied the host until my time came to leave it. I wasn't happy with the accommodations that followed. Most disagreeable, Alistair. Most disagreeable. The accommodations that followed? Come, Alistair, don't be so slow. A spirit who leaves the host departs to one place or the other. I wasn't happy where I went, and so, eventually, I broke out. I escaped. I took it in. The stowaway had escaped? From hell? I've been hiding back here ever since. Obvious thing to do. Honestly, I'm surprised they never figured it out and came for me. But I've had my nose to the ground, as the saying goes, and I do believe it's safe for me to leave again now. Perhaps find my way back in the real world. I think they stopped looking for me some time ago. Doesn't matter either way. Once you move the line again, I'll be forced out. You know this. Yes, that much I knew. Are you ready for the next step, Alistair? The big jump? The final push? Are you ready for the front of the line? The others are nearly in position. Dimly, muffled behind walls of dank concrete, I could discern other noises. Human noises. Boys. Was the stowaway referring to them, or to the rest of the cockroaches, the scattered host? But he must mean the host, because if we were where I thought we were, the boys who lived here couldn't go anywhere, nor position themselves for anything. If I was right, then we were... At the Manassas Regional Juvenile Detention Center. Then the current home of... Ricky Harlow. The 13-year-old boy serving his second prison term for selling illegal drugs to other children. I sought my memory for what I'd read about him, for the actual term, and found it. Methamphetamines. I remembered two more words, smack and mule. Smack, I figured, was some kind of slang for another drug. But I could not guess what a mule might be. Not in the context with what little I had read. Didn't matter. Of all the candidates we had on our list, of every child in which we sensed an impending suicide, or at least an attempt, I could think of none more worthy of absorption into the host than one who would peddle that kind of poison to other kids. The world would be better off without him, safer without him. And still, I hesitated. What was a mule? Go, Alistair. The stowaway's words breathed into my brain like temptation itself. Everything is in place. Do not lose this moment. I will show you how to get there. Leaving the pipes, crawling now through the dungeon walls of the detention center, I could sense the impending death in the way we who occupy the host always have. I scent. It is, I suppose, similar to the perceptions of a predator who can smell fear in its prey. There's no other way to describe it. No other scent to which it might be compared. But it smelled good. It smelled heavenly. There. 
Now, into the vents. Gotta keep moving. Moving. Down the wall. Under the door. Move. 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 I could see the room before I got there. Read it through the boy's memory. I could see him sitting on his bunk, his head down, dark air covering his eyes. He took in a breath, his chest hitching as though fighting back tears or surrendering to them. He wore only a plain set of black sweatpants, a blank white t-shirt, and paper shoes. His arms were bruised, purple and yellow splotches dotted with red points at the creases of his elbows, angry and inflamed like scorpion stings. In his head, I heard his own host speaking to him, devils from the real world who seethed threats into his memory, voices from the outside, one woman and one man. Yes, you will, Ricky. You'll do it, and you'll keep doing it, or there'll be none for you. We will fucking cut you off, Ricky. Find someone else who wants this job. Like your little brother, Ricky. How about that? That sound good to you? Or will you do as you're fucking told? And one voice from the inside, also adult, but kind, seeming. Who was this whispering in this boy's mind? A counselor? One of the cards? When you're back, Ricky. After dinner and after your shower, it'll be there when the lights go off. No one will see you get it. Not even the camera. I saw the boy nod, listening, not knowing if this was a memory or happening right now. You won't feel a thing. It'll be like falling asleep. I promise. You will fall asleep. I was in the open hall of the dungeon dormitory now, keeping to the shadows, wary of the booted feet of the two men who paced up and down the length of the hall, each from opposite directions, checking cell windows, crossing each other with a nod. The boy, Ricky, whispered back. But I'll die. Same as those others. Those two kids you sold the same shit to back in June. Same as Angela. Same as my nephew. You fucking little bastard. I didn't mean for them to die. I swear. I was just a runner. I didn't want anyone to die. They want you to die, Ricky. Wherever they are, I guarantee it. You know it. Everyone wants you to die. The boy looked up, blinking tears. Even you. You want this. You know it. It's your hour. 
I saw the others, too. The other cockroaches, the other members of the host, scuttling off to whatever their separate duties were. Most, it appeared, were heading under the doors of the other cells. There were more than a dozen of them, all told. But there were a thousand of us. How many were going to each cell? How many were going for Ricky's? It was the fourth one down on the right. I kept going forward, moving, moving. Hurry now. Almost time. Gotta move. 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 Only you. You go in alone until you call the others back. But do that quickly, before the boy finishes. Do not wait. You need to be there as what you are to receive him. You need to be the host. The problem, I realized, as the cockroach body I now occupied continued forth on six legs as though against my own will, was that I thought I knew more of this boy's circumstance now, and my own, as revealed through the stowaway. This boy, this mule, was being compelled to do things he didn't want to do. He was trying not to do them. He didn't deserve to die. No more than the others on Mary Beth's list. No more than did that bullied girl in her first year of high school. I had killed before. I was guilty of murder. Oh yes, more times over than I cared to remember. That didn't bother me so much. What bothered me now, so near to the end of it all, was that the people I really wanted dead were the ones who had ruined them or who were trying to ruin them. And I didn't want to wait until they had lived their lives and were rotting away in places like Sunrise Nursing Home to do it. I wanted to rampage on those human monsters right fucking now. I wanted to kill them, not Ricky, and somehow still move the line. Couldn't be done. That wasn't how the host worked. Yet, I hesitated. If hell truly awaited me on the other side, there might be no avoiding it, but that didn't matter. In the moment just before I flitted under that fourth dungeon door on the right, I seemed to remember someone, a boy I had known once, long ago, who was not so angry. A boy with dark hair, a penchant towards mischief. A boy who had love, who had never meant anyone harm who had his dreams and his very life ripped away before he'd had a chance to live it. He looked, in some ways, like the boy in this jail cell who sat before me even now, his hair still wet from the shower as the lights above him went dark. In that fraction of a second, his eyes blinked and zeroed in on me. He had seen me. If he wanted to, he could lurch off that bed and stomp me flat against the concrete, my guts and legs scattered under the heel of his paper shoe. Instead, he stood from his cot, then turned to it and knelt before it as though for prayers. From out in the hall, an echoing clang and a ratcheting of metal was as good as a spoken pronouncement that the guards had either switched out at the start of a new shift or left the hall entirely. 
time, Alistair. The stowaway's voice breathed into my brain, but as it whispered to me, perfectly audible, it simultaneously receded, as though the spirit who had taken refuge in the host now withdrew from it, or was, again, surrendering itself to sleep. Goodbye, and good luck. Ricky lifted the mattress. Underneath it, resting on a white sheet just over the springboard, lay a blue rubber tourniquet and a cheap plastic syringe with a brown-stained plunger and a rusty needle. He took it, sat back on his cot without straightening the sheets. He wrapped his arms across his stomach and silently rocked back and forth, back and forth. He was so close, so very close. From this proximity, mere moments from the act itself, the host can make itself known to its quarry. We can speak to it, take on the semblance of any voice we wish. We can be heard by the quarry and no one else. And as the stowaway relinquished control, I could hear the sound of cockroaches scuttling under Ricky's cell door. I joined with the first one, then another. Ricky didn't seem to notice. Who did it? Who left that needle under your bed, Ricky? He need only think an answer. His brain would supply it out of reflex. However, he consciously reacted, and I'd hear it. But instead, he spoke aloud. The, 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 the guard, Mr. Harris. More roaches under the door. We coalesced invisibly, redefining our shape in the dark as they poured in by the dozen. Do you know his first name, Ricky? And again, the voices in my head. No surprise, the first one was Mary Beth's. Alistair, who cares? We can settle his account after we have him. I ignored her. Give me a name, Ricky. Benny. Benny Harris. He looked up, blinking in the dark, not seeing us. We didn't cast so much as a shadow. Not yet. Soon. From out in the halls, from behind one of the other cell doors, yet another voice called out. Kill yourself. That would be the doing of one of the others, one who had not yet rejoined the host, exerting its influence over a different boy in lockup. And it happened again from farther away. Kill yourself. Ricky circled the tourniquet about his right bicep, tying the knot, pulling it tight with his teeth. No time to waste. Give me other names, I said feeling the first bits of our collective shadow at last begin to gather. I took a knee in front of him. Your dealers, Ricky. Who were they? Tell me. I can make it right. I can make everything right. Alistair, what? 
No, you can't, and you know it. Not yet. Stop. Behind her, from deep down, others joined in her descent. Thought became painful, became loud. I shook my head as though to clear it. Ricky shook his head, too. But from him, it was a denial. He didn't want to speak the names. Out in the hall, more voices. A small chorus of prisoners taking up the words like a chant. Ricky tapped up a vein, crying freely. Tell me, Ricky. I said to him again, and then, with a sadness I could not conceal. What have you got to lose? He looked up and saw me. Or us. I don't know. I have no idea what we looked like in that moment. But there was no fear in Ricky's eyes. No confusion. Not even shock. We were the eyes of many just before they joined the host. The eyes of a doomed soul who sees the coming damnation with only resignation. There was no fight in him. Nothing to be afraid of anymore. He was already as good as gone. Who are they, Ricky? Give me their names. I waited and summoned the last of the cockroaches into the cell with an effort of will no different than a living mind might command a body's hand to clench into a fist. I waited and gave up any hope Ricky Harlow would actually answer me. No big deal. We'd find out anyway. Mom. He slid the needle into the vein. Dad. He pressed the plunger, withdrew the needle, let the syringe clatter to the floor. Where I stared at it, not him, as long seconds passed. As I felt the presence of the stowaway first fade, then disappear. Out in the halls, noise from the cells. Kids who had, however briefly, done the will of the spirits who made up the host and were now released from it. Cries and exclamations, wailing. Some even called for the guards. They'd be confused, traumatized. Fuck it. I thought. They'll recover. Fuck it. Ricky lay down on his cot to die. And fuck them. Fuck all of them. I could feel him coming, his identity within the host growing and taking on its own form at the back of the line, filling the space the stowaway had left. But then... Mary Beth noticed it in the moment before I had, and she was terrified. The body, the host, had rejected him. The boy lay flat, staring up with deadening eyes at the ceiling. But he wasn't coming our way after all. And it hit me. Of course he wasn't. And there was nothing to be afraid of. 
The host was correcting itself now that the stowaway had gone. It was only supposed to contain 1,000 ghosts at any one time. Ricky Harlow had just been taken in, just for a few seconds, and then been sent on. He was either going up or going down. But the line did move. I felt it, even as I watched Ricky blink one final time, hitch in his last breath, and smile. you, Ricky Harlow. Good for you. And I smiled too. Why not? I was front of the line. I was in charge now. And until the line moved again, the host would operate under the command or whims of one Alistair Charles Hutchinson. No one else. First things first, though. Congratulations. Mary Beth took up her standard post right between my goddamned eyes. But what now? Now? I said aloud, considering our options. Would probably be a good time to get the hell out of here. Agree. And there was only one thing to do or try to do, and much to my relief, it worked one more time. I'd probably have to eat a new bug to make the magic work again in the future. It's Saturday, October 10th, 2014. I've been at the front of the line for a few weeks now, and things are going well. Very well, I must admit. I've learned so much already since I've been here. At times, I almost feel like it'll be a shame to leave. But that time is coming. That time is close. Oh, but I have got plans for how I'm going to take my exit from this hundred-year hell. Suffice it to say, I will not go quietly into the night. Shame about Benny Harris, veteran prison guard of children... Master, in his mind, of all he surveyed. Dead from a blood infection he'd contracted by way of a dirty needle. No one even knew he was a user until he turned up at the emergency room, bloodshot in the eyes and staggering, blathering on and on about how he'd been attacked, how it wasn't his fault. I don't expect any of his former charges attending the services, though. If anyone did... Stranger still, the fate of Addie Harlow and her husband Preston, the anonymous tip that led the authorities to their house. Turns out they'd been in the process of grooming their second son, a boy now in foster care for mule duty. Such crimes don't go over well in adult jail. Other inmates, it seems, have higher community standards than that. Really odd that they should have both been murdered on the same night, though. First night in, actually before they had so much as a bond hearing. And while they were being detained in separate facilities, there's just no explaining it. The voices in my head grow restless again, none more so than Mary Beth, 
and it's hard to blame her. She's next in line, after all. One step away from her own freedom. It's what we all want, isn't it? I have things to do first. New things to try. Experiments to conduct. Now that I'm here, I have questions that need answering. I find I can project myself these days, witnessing things from a distance where potential quarry for the host is concerned. I'm getting better and better at the computer, too. The internet's been lively tonight. Turns out, my second choice for acquisition by the host, the freshman being bullied online by her classmates, really was a more likely candidate than anyone else on Mary Beth's list. She nearly moved the line tonight herself. And... I've seen her before. Maybe not exactly, but it's close. So very close. I've seen her picture. In life, a long time ago, I saw her face in someone else. But that someone, unlike this girl who slashed her wrist an hour ago, wanted very much to live. And did live, long after I was gone. Kill yourself one of the bullies said to her online. Just like that. No prompting from anyone. Fifteen others in the chat had done little or nothing to stop her. I don't think they believed she'd try. But she did. She tried very hard. She did her best. And then one of them, just one, called for help. That help, from all I could tell, arrived just in time. It nearly ended for me right there, right in this girl's own bedroom. But it didn't, and I'm glad. Like I said, I have things to do, and it's almost time for the midnight ritual, and there are 16 punks living wild and free in Fairview, Virginia, who need to be taught a very serious lesson. One of them will move the line for me. Not Audrey. Not the second coming of my very own Helen. No. I'll look after her. Protect her. Make sure she's safe, just as I did for Helen when she was alive. It's the least I can do to honor her memory. sun creeps above the horizon. The darkness slowly fades, for now. But you will fear the darkness once again, as you remain sleepless. The No Sleep Podcast is presented by Creative Reason Media. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mikulski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. 
please visit the nosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for being a supportive Season Pass member and for being ever sleepless. This program is copyright 2022 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.